0: All right, so we read this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. And specifically, we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And this morning, we're looking at the first uh, few verses of that particular chapter uh, related to the context in 23 to 34. But we'll read that entire group of verses together. So, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 reads For I received from the Lord. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. As we look to this particular passage this morning, we are discovering uh, what the Lord has said concerning not only the supper that's been delivered to Paul, but also the challenge that the Corinthian church faced in trying to uphold uh, the sacrament of the Lord's supper. And it was met with a challenge because the Corinthians had taken lightly uh, fellowship. And so you see the relationship between maintaining holiness And maintaining fellowship but also you see that they had because of their factions not consecrated themselves to god and because of those factions they had begun to establish new rules and new decrees and new modes and manner and operations of doing things in such a way that you see how it begins to affect particular areas of the church we already established how the overall morality of the church was challenged We then see how marriage and the family within the church construct is challenged because they're allowing immorality to thrive. We then see how uh, the Lord's Supper was challenged because you tie it back to what we've discovered already related to the food that was sacrificed to idols and how there was this what we call a blending together, the syncretism, when uh, the idea that when you take Christianity and you take that which belongs to the world and you blend them together so as to create a new quote-unquote Christianity, you see the effect of that. And so as we have pushed up against those areas of idolatry and Paul writing to the Corinthians to avoid those things, you then see what what is uh, tampered with is the Lord's Supper. And so Paul, in order to correct their hearts, he begins to correct their view of the supper. So he wants the Corinthians to take the Lord's Supper in a way that was intentionally and specifically delivered to him by Christ. And so he's saying, I want the Corinthians to take the table. I want you, Corinthians, to gather around the table, not only uh, to do so in the construct of the church, but with the right motive of the heart. It has to come from a place of fellowship. And so you see that the effect of their factions has essentially uh, struck a chord against holiness to the point where they begin to desecrate the particular things that God has delivered to the church. You also see that being the case as we approach chapter 12 when we look at spiritual gifts that they begin to pervert spiritual gifts. They begin to use spiritual gifts in such a way so as not to build one another up. And the root of that is love, that they fail to love one another as they ought to. So then Paul has to define love for them. And he has to demonstrate love for them in order to rebuke them and to call them out. And as we progress all the way through Corinthians, you'll see where they begin to challenge Paul himself. They begin to challenge Paul himself. And they begin to insinuate that Paul's apostleship is not necessary nor good enough for their church so that they welcome in false teachers and super apostles to say the things that would be better suited for their sins. But here we have the Lord's Supper, and this is a beautiful, beautiful passage. We have looked at this passage many times in our fellowship over the years because we partake of the Lord's table here. And so I want to look at this related to the particulars. But I also want you to understand that in the particulars, Paul is first dealing with the positive. So the first few verses, he deals with the positive. Verses 23 to 26, he deals with here are the positive elements of the Lord's Supper that I want you to keep in mind as you partake of the table. And then as we get to twenty seven to thirty four verses twenty seven to thirty four, you're now dealing with the warnings you're dealing with the built in consequences. And we'll talk about this as we move along in this text. But you'll you'll see the warnings that are evident to the Corinthians that essentially do not come to the table with a heart that is not consecrated and worshiping God and loving your fellow brother and sister in Christ and fellowshipping in the fellowship of Christ. Together. And so Paul first establishes himself as an apostle, he establishes himself as an apostle. And I believe he does this at many different turns as we look at the many issues that he's trying to, by God's spirit, correct amongst the Corinthians, that he first deals with his apostleship because he's explaining to them that I am commissioned and sanctioned by God to tell you what I'm telling you. That it's not simply a new idea or this idea of us coming together in the Lord's Supper is simply to go along with the feast that you have already been practicing. Instead, what he's saying is, What I have received, I am giving it to you. And I have received it from the head of the church. So there is no other authority upon which they can appeal to to stop what Paul is trying to initiate among them. He says in verse 23 For I received. From the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. So let's pause here and think about this. As he says, I have received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, we look at that first phrase, I received from the Lord. He's saying, The Lord gave it to me and I'm giving it to you. This is not simply coming from Paul the Apostle himself. This is coming from the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the undisputed head of the church. For I've received from the Lord. And then he says, that which I deliver to you. Now, if you think about this, and it's kind of the point that we had been making in some of the other issues that we discussed so far in Corinthians, that when you look at this particular verse and this particular passage, that Paul the apostle is correcting things he had already given to the Corinthians. You understand that. So, it's not like in many of these issues it's the first time they're hearing things. It's that he's telling them, I have given this to you. I have delivered this into your hands and you were expected to practice it the way that I had given it to you. And so Paul is then correcting the way that they have received it. And I believe that that also drives why he says what he says in chapter one when he begins to rehash their very salvation. Because they had slipped away from where they started. And you and I are seeing that slippage. So it's not that this is the first interaction that Paul is having with them. In fact, when we looked at previous issues related to this epistle, Paul speaks in such a way as though he's he's uh, offering a rebuttal to arguments that are made to him that we necessarily don't have as scripture record, so to speak. But you can tell Paul is pushing back against things they're saying. What they're saying is not scripture because what they're saying is not biblical, but Paul is correcting it. And I believe it's the same thing here. I believe that Paul is correcting their view of the Lord's Supper because they had received the proper view and they slipped from it. If Paul hadn't delivered it, then Paul is responsible for their failure. But you see in this way that Paul is speaking in such a way where his hands are washed of their sins But he's certainly trying to get down in the mud with them and pull them out of it to correct them. So he says, for I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now, let's pause here. I believe that we have our first warning. It's implied. Whereas. The warnings that follow in verse 27 and beyond, they're a bit more explicit. The first warning is that the occasion of the Lord instituting the supper and fulfillment of the Passover is to dismiss the one who betrayed him. And so you have within this Lord's Supper institution, within this inception and beginning of the Lord's Supper, you have where the Lord Jesus was betrayed. I believe the warning is very implicit because of what follows. And I believe the warning can be said very simple. Don't be like Judas. Do not betray the Lord because they're already in the midst of doing that. And so a lot of what Paul is saying is, I do not want the Lord to dismiss you from his table because he could have just said, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you and then go on and when he had given thanks, But no, he says the Lord was betrayed and the occasion of his betrayal was not things got out of hand. The occasion of his betrayal was that that disciple was no longer his disciple. And he was not a partaker at the table. I believe that he's implying to them that you're starting to look as though you're betraying him. Now, think of the issues that have led us up to the Lord's Supper. I don't believe that the spirit of God puts flippant words or flippant ideas in the text. I believe everything is intentional. So the mention of this betrayal is very intentional. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now listen to this. The communion goes on. The communion doesn't stop because of what Judas does, because the Lord is fully in control, because God's decrees will not end because sinners are rebelling against him. In fact, Judas did what he was supposed to do, and he was where he was because God had used it and willed it to be so. And the prophets had spoken about it. Now, Judas's evil is his evil. God had no hand in that, but God had a hand in using that evil to fulfill his perfect, holy and good purposes. But I believe that the first warning is certainly implied even in the positive. And I know when we read it, we typically read it just Verse by verse. And we read it pretty quickly. But if you stop and think about that, I believe that he's implying to them. Do not betray the one who gave you the the right, the divine right to dine with him at his table. Do not betray him. But you also see that it goes on. The events continue. They don't stop because of what took place there. And so here we have. The occasion of the actual elements that are provided, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They were to remember certain things. They were to remember to eat of the bread that was symbolic of his body. And not simply his body in the physical sense, but what his body would do, that his body in bodily form, the God man would go to the cross and sacrifice himself for the elect. And so he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It not only points to the cross, but it points to the future. It points to the fact of his sure and certain return. And you'll see that as we get to the end of this particular context. But he first gives thanks. Verse 24 lets you know that the Lord's table is a place where Jesus is in control. Jesus isn't taken aback, surprised by the betrayal that took place in the midst of this. In fact, he knew it was coming. But in other In another uh, instance, he gives thanks. He breaks the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, him breaking the bread is him simply passing the bread around to be shared. It's not saying anything about his body was broken, but it is him passing the bread to his disciples. The breaking of this bread is to demonstrate the significance of fellowship around the table. And that all partakers are partaking in the body of Christ together, symbolically speaking, because they're to remember something beyond the bread that is being broken. And he says to do it in remembrance of me. So let's back up and think about this. If they're coming to the table incorrectly, if they're coming to the table with simple allegiances to their faction heads, if they're coming to the table with immorality in their practice and in their heart. Idolatry in their practice, in their hearts. How then can they take the communion, take the Lord's Supper in a way that brings honor to him? They won't be taking it in a way that calls them to remember him. And so Paul wants them to remember. He wants them to remember. He wants them to remember why they're partaking of the cup. And so he gives them first the warning. Do not betray the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for the elect of God. Do not betray the one who on the occasion of his supper near the cross dismissed the betrayer from his presence, who then had no part in the supper. But also, I want you to understand something. This is no ordinary feast. This is not simply a feast among feast. It's not simply a feast like the others. This is the Lord's supper. If you look at the counterpart context that draws us to this, where Jesus institutes this, you get the idea. You see that there was a Passover and an expectation of a Passover, and it had very particular elements and particular ways and a particular uh, reminder that was supposed to be on the hearts of the Israelites. When Jesus comes and fulfills it, What then changes is the dispensation, but the reverence, sobriety and somberness and the celebratory aspect doesn't change. We simply enter into a new covenant. Something has been fulfilled. So this is no ordinary feast. This is not simply a meal. This is not simply a meal. And this is certainly no pagan feast, because about in this time in the Corinthian History and also in that time in the ancient world, feasts were certainly religious in nature and feasts were something that were lavish and they were practiced with religious overtones. And when I say religious, I don't mean godly. I just mean that they were ceremonious and ritualistic. But this is different. The one who gave it, who gave this supper to us is holy and transcendent and transcendent from us. Yet he is imminent, which is his time is near, and imminent, which means he will soon return. So he is among us, imminent, and imminent in the sense that he will soon return. So we partake of this, knowing that he is with us, he lives in us, Christ in us, and all the passages that deal with our fellowship in Christ and him and us abiding in him and he abiding in us, but we also look forward to his sure and certain return. But then you not only see warning, you see beauty and mercy in the supper. Here, I believe, as it says, when he had given thanks, he broke it. So there's bread involved and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here he is pointing to that which is symbolic about himself. Paul is pointing back to what Jesus said, and Jesus is pointing even back to what he had said earlier. I'm referencing particularly John chapter six, verse thirty five, where Jesus called himself the bread of life. It is why I believe these particular elements are involved in the supper. That we're to think of who he truly is when we partake of this bread in the Lord's table and we're to really think about the eternal nature of of who he is and the eternal decrees that have come from him he is indeed the bread of life. so when we eat just as the corinthians were to eat of the bread we are eating the literal bread we're eating the literal bread and doing so to symbolically point us to the bodily sacrifice let me repeat that for you we are eating the literal bread And doing so to symbolically point us to the literal bodily sacrifice, which from the vantage point of Matthew 26, where this passage comes from, Jesus instituted the supper. But it was a prophecy soon to be fulfilled from the vantage point of Matthew 26. He was about to demonstrate that sacrifice. As we look back from Paul's words, even from our age into the time of the Corinthians, we are looking back to a fulfilled prophecy with the hope to look forward to the end of it where we will commune with him in his kingdom forever. However, here in Corinth, Paul, as I've said, he already delivered these realities to the Corinthians. You see a certain stubbornness that's beginning to surface because that's what division does. That's what factions do. It creates confusion and stubbornness and selfishness, desire to do things your own way. But they had to this point, to this point that Paul is speaking of, they were looking back in the time of Corinth to the cross work of Jesus Christ as our perfect substitute. Now, let's think about that for a second. I would ask you a question. What would then be the correction for the division amongst the Corinthians? It would be to look back to the cross work of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished there, because that was the only way that they would survive as a church. That's the only way that they would be able to practice to suffer the way that God intended. It's not simply going about the church activities or simply going about, we'll just take the Lord's Supper. We'll do this. We'll check off the boxes of what the church has always done. No, it's tying them to the cross. It's tying them to the cross. And that helps us define them and practice them in the way that God intended. And so here you have this reality before us. But even in the act of partaking in the Lord's Supper, why it's not simply a feast or time to eat food and why i believe we're protected in the practice we're certainly protected in our holiness as our hearts are right before god there was to be reverence and remembrance reverence and remembrance we know that god is holy We're thinking on that and we're thinking on the very particular ways as we partake of this table. But we're also remembering what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish. The Lord called the Corinthians, his early disciples and us in the present church age to remember this specific saving work. Every time we partake of the supper. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is for you. And so he's not speaking in the general sense of for you. He's speaking only to the elect. He's speaking only to his church. This is for you. Because the communion, the Lord's Supper, is not a wide open practice. Because he's telling them, I did this for you. This is signifying my sacrifice for you. It's not a hypothetical communion. It's not that we can partake of the communion with unbelievers, only partaking amongst those for whom Christ died, and for whom his sacrifice is effective, otherwise known as efficacious, meaning you are truly saved, you are literally taking of partaking of a supper, and you are fellowshipping with each other when you do that. Now, as many as he welcomes, Into his kingdom, by the blood of his cross, those whom he draws to himself, those are the ones with whom we enjoy fellowship and communion. But when you look at this specifically, he wants them to remember this. So the bread is an element in the supper. I want you to understand something so you and I avoid the dangers of Israel that Paul warns us about. The bread is an element in the supper and it must certainly be what it is. But the bread is not the main focus of the Lord's Supper. The elements are not the main focus. Now, it's specific as to what they are, but what they mean are more important. Israel lost their way. Israel had begun in the time of the Pharisees, particularly, and even during their Old Testament captivity. They took the things that were supposed to be symbolic and placed uh, and placed reverence on those things, severed them from God, and begin to still practice the activities. So you can have so-called churches who are taking communion and they have no communion with Christ. They're just simply drinking grape juice or wine or whatever they prefer and eating bread together or crackers, and that's all they see it as. But not us. Not us. We see this as the Lord's Supper. The elements are very specific and the reason we're doing it is very specific. Well, why? Because we're called to have that kind of uh, specificity. So the bread is an element of the supper, but not the main focus. I'll say also about the wine. It's the element, but not the main focus. Here then in verse 25, we are called to remember some other specific things. Look at verse 25 in the same way. So now you know that The elements have to be taken together and they also are tied together and they have to be remembered in the same way. So you can't say, well, I'm eating the bread and that is literal Christ and I'm symbolically taking wine. No, they're one and the same. You have to say I am taking the literal elements, but they both mean something symbolically. And what they mean symbolically are in relationship to what they point to. Paul is very specific in this area. We are called to remember these specific things. First, there is a cup that we are to drink. There's a cup that we are to drink. Look at this. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Do what? Drink it. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I believe that this signifies for us Our citizenship in heaven specifically, but also our belonging in the new covenant. I also think that it points to our discipleship. Because we are asked to drink of the cup. We're asked to walk with Christ in such a way that we are marked by those who have been redeemed by his blood. So this element is pointing to that. For the Corinthians, they had to understand that that is the way that they were supposed to think about it when they drank it. And that was the way that they were supposed to drink it. There is a cup that they are to drink, that we are to drink. And in that cup is wine. Where am I getting that from? I want you to think about this. That Jesus, when referring to the new covenant in the Gospels. He talks about new wine, the wine skins, and he talks about a work that he is about to do pointing to the passing of the Mosaic Covenant and its practices. And not that he's abolishing them, but he came to fulfill them and their fulfillment is in the particulars of his redeeming work related to the new covenant. Even the practices that once belonged to the temple that have been fulfilled and now they are vested to the church. But in this, you have particular elements, particular elements that are taken. I believe that, again, there's nothing that is done that is simply done flippantly. God doesn't do things just to amuse himself or to amuse us. I turned your thoughts to the wedding at Cana. The wedding at Cana, Jesus turns water into wine. It was not simply to show them, aha, it can be done. It was to show them that there's something specific about what Jesus is going to accomplish related to his new covenant. And he also, when he is telling the religious leaders that my program and your program are not the same. He refers to the fact that they're putting wine into wineskins skins that is not compatible. And so it will then burst and you have this waste. And essentially in that what Jesus is saying, and you can look up that in the Gospels, but what Jesus is saying is my scheme doesn't belong in your scheme. You need to walk in step with what I'm doing. I'm not trying to fit my program into your program that has nothing to do with God's program. Isaiah talks about wine and its significance tied to the new covenant. The Gospel writers talk about it. Revelation talks about in judgment, treading the winepress in the fury of his wrath. The point that I'm saying is that at this particular feast, it is elements that are taken and elements that are used that point to what God intended uh, to uh, draw us to literal worship based on the symbolic things that we have in our hands. So then how does that apply to the Corinthians first? And it certainly applies to us. Well, there was no room for the Corinthians to alter the elements. Why? Because Paul is speaking to them like they should be partaking already in the manner that we have that we have said. They couldn't misinterpret the elements. They couldn't come to the table in a manner that was disobedient to the command from Christ through Paul, the apostle. In fact, the apostle's mission was this. I can sum up the apostle's mission in this epistle. I can sum up the modern church man's uh, mission because it's very much related. He received this exactly from Christ. How do you think he was supposed to deliver it? He was to deliver, deliver it in the exact same way to the Corinthians. So there was no way to alter this and to say, well, the age demands something different. People love the feast so they can just have a feast any way they like. You know, let's think about this together. Let's form a council. No, he said, God gave this to me. I'm giving it to you the exact same way. So now your role in the church age is to protect it. You have to protect it in the way that it was handed. It's why we don't alter the community. It's why we don't say, well, now the communion's open for everybody. We need a financial boost in our church. So we're going to change the terms of fellowship and we're just going to offer this communion to anyone who shows up. No, that's not how it was taken. As many of us that are here and in Christ and brothers and sisters in him, however many of us it is, nothing changes. We do it the way that God designed for us to do it. All this talk about how the church is in many ways necessary and it is foundational and it is essential and it is. And in this talk, so many fall off the table, so to speak, with relating to the Lord's Supper because they partake with hearts that are antagonistic toward him. They partake in unholiness, and there are consequences that we'll discover next time we're together related to that. But my point is, the church is not simply essential in the general sense. The church is not simply necessary in the general sense. Nothing that happens outside the church makes it necessary. The church is necessary because it belongs to God. God. But in that, there are particular things that the church does so that the church may do what God required of it. Or else the church will lose its mantle and cease to be a church, even if it continues to call itself that. So in this, we see that now they were to drink of this cup. They were to drink of this cup. First, it was that they were to partake of the bread. But he took the cup after they had eaten and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was a symbol for something. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So it succeeds the eating of the bread. They were to drink of the cup as a symbol of his shed blood. Now, I believe and I know that you would agree with me that God is a very exact God. He is a very precise God. We don't simply partake of the elements in whatever order we please. You partake of the bread and then you partake of the cup. You partake of the bread and you partake of the cup. And on your mind should be the things that God requires us to be thinking about as we partake. We're not thinking about life's necessary challenges We're not thinking about, well, I have this and this to do. We're not thinking about, I sure am hungry. I'd like to partake of the supper today because honestly, that's what the Corinthians were doing. We are to look at the sure sacrifice of Christ, the new covenant and our place in it, and then partake of the table. Think of how many so-called churches partake of the Lord's Supper, so they think. And you ask them, what are the features of the new covenant? And they have no idea what the new covenant is. But they're taking, quote unquote, communion or think of these places that take communion. They get it wrong with respect to how they view the elements and Christ and all those things. And yet they have nothing to do with the new covenant. It's one thing to be ignorant and needing to learn, but in being ignorant, one should not partake of the table. Because we are called to really think about our place in the new covenant, the features in the new covenant, what Christ has accomplished in the new covenant and what Christ will accomplish in his sure return. And by faith, we are taking this and we belong to this. But they were to drink of this cup as a symbol of his shed blood. And that shed blood inaugurating The end fulfillment of the Mosaic law. We're supposed to know all of that? Yes. Yes. Why do anything in the church if you don't know why you're doing it? Jesus doesn't call us to just do things because he said so. That's certainly the way that we're supposed to obey. But he's saying, I want you to understand what you're doing. And I'm going to deliver it to you in such a way so that you understand. Paul is explaining to the Corinthians you've gotten away from this look how you're practicing the lord's supper you need to return back to this i think there should be a call to the church in our present age to return to the particulars of how they practice the lord's supper why do you practice it the way you do what are you supposed to be thinking about as you practice the lord's supper is it just habit a ritual But why are we partaking of it and what does it mean? Because in that in that answer, there's beauty, there's beauty, but there's also sobriety. But there to think about the shed blood inaugurating the fulfillment of the Mosaic law and all those Passover feasts signaling a new and better covenant established on better promises. Some might say, well, that's a whole lot of things to call Christians to remember. Well, I would say let's put down all the book studies and the programs. Let's open up God's word and explain this to the people so that they're, when they sit before the Lord's Supper, they're not thinking about the latest, greatest author who's saying things to them that have nothing to do with any of this. Our charter is the scripture. And so when we sit before his table and it should be something that encourages our heart, we should know God's word and we should know what the covenant's. And we should know this is why I am partaking of the table. We don't have the option to refrain from it as Christians. And then we don't have the option to desecrate it as Christians. So we had better know and it is good for us to know why we're doing it. Because we must do it. We're called to do it and we're called to remember. But for them... For them, they were called to not only think about their place in this new and better covenant. They were not to return to the Passover. They were not to return to the Passover. He didn't want them to return to the Passover. Nor on the other side of that. So if the Passover is the ideological right in the time in which we find ourselves in Corinth. He also didn't want them to feast in the ideological left. The hedonistic pleasure, where they're just eating and drinking out of sheer pleasure of eating and drinking. Eating and drinking in pleasure has its place, ecclesiastical wisdom, but it doesn't have its place at the Lord's Supper. The Passover had its place, but when we get to Matthew 26, it no longer has its place in the church age because it's been fulfilled by the one to whom those Passovers pointed. So he wanted the pagan Gentiles to come to faith in Christ so that they can be partakers. He didn't want paganism to be infused with the Lord's Supper. And he wanted those who were flirting with the paganism to stop. But he also didn't want the return to the Passover in the sense of uh, the Mosaic Covenant. But I'll tell you, they were to remember the occasion of the Lord's death. This is very particular things that's in this passage. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup together in succession, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So they were to remember the occasion of the Lord's death. And in that act of the Lord's supper, it was to serve as a continual testimony that he died on the cross for sinners. So when we partake of this table, we are making an open declaration and proclamation about very specific things that Christ has accomplished. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I love the way that's said because that speaks of the fact that his death was not a final death. He was resurrected because it's saying there he's returning again. You're proclaiming his death. Yes, that took place. We don't hide that fact. We don't try to skirt around the details. No, our Lord died on the cross and he resurrected himself unto uh, our justification that is to declare the sinner not guilty based on what he accomplished and he is at the, he is seated at the right hand of the father and he lives to make intercession for us And so we live in that reality but it is both solemn and somber. It is both solemn and somber It was not it was also not simply solemn and somber but hopeful and celebratory. Was hopeful and celebratory. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yes, it was a death, but he's alive, he's risen. And so there's a hope that's in this Lord's Supper when we partake of it. It was to look not only back at the cross, but also to look forward to the return of our great King of Kings. So our hearts are longing for something to take place, longing for literal and spiritual communion with him when he installs his kingdom upon the earth. I'm getting that from him specifically in Matthew 26. Jesus says we're going to do this together in our kingdom, literally commune together. Not simply in communal, but literally eat and drink together. And you will have the Passover lamb with you. It's not simply ceremony. It is the essence of true fellowship that he's calling his people to. It was to look back at the cross and to look forward. To look forward to our true, what we enjoy in a glimpse, spiritual communion. We do have it with him. He presides as the sovereign one. He's also living in our hearts for those of us who believe he's in us. We're walking with him but we will one day see him. And so this is spiritual communion with him. It is then tied to true worship and true fellowship, just as is our Lord's day. For we gather together in this place to celebrate the resurrection and to remind ourselves by his Holy Spirit that he will indeed return again to us. We're reminding ourselves. When we partake of the Lord's table, we're reminding ourselves That he has died and that he has risen. And that all the features of the new covenant belong to us. That the promise of a kingdom, the promise of a great king, the sure deposit on our eternal life in him and our salvation. That when we close our eyes in death, we'll wake up and be in the presence of his glory. That is what this is all leading to. It's not leading to some elongated church service. It's leading to the fact that we will be in the kingdom. Joint heirs who have a deposit on an eternal kingdom that will never end. That's the communion. We're reminded of that. We're reminded of that in our fellowship. See how dangerous it is, even in Corinth and in the modern church age, to turn this away and to point the man or some men as our hope. How dangerous it is, but also how dangerous it is to come to the table And to not think about these things when we come to the table. Really, we cheat ourselves. But we also spur ourselves on to all the things that God commands us to when we remember these things. It is to remind ourselves of the work of the Holy Spirit, that he will indeed make sure on what has been guaranteed and promised. To perform the supper is a proclamation of the supper itself, but also the particulars of the supper. And here's how we look to close this. You see in the verses that follow. There are two results that lie before the Corinthians. The next time we're together, we're going to look at the consequences. But there was to be the expectation, just as we have in our hearts, that if they were truly commanded To follow this and truly commune together at the lord's table there was a built-in hope for doing so in holiness and reverence when you and i partake of the table as often as we do it there's a built-in hope and established holiness and we're looking forward to eternal life something that we could not conjure up for ourselves capital s someone did it for us namely christ but yet There's also something that we must be mindful of that follows in the verses that we'll explore together next time. I'll read them as we conclude. But there was also an expectation of judgment and punishment toward those who communed at the table, but were unworthy to do so. Let's finish by reading those final verses as we end our time together. Therefore, verse 27, whoever eats the bread Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, built in consequence, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, a euphemism for death but if we judge ourselves rightly we would not be judged we would not be judged but when we are judged we are disciplined by the lord it's a beautiful thing so that purpose we will not be condemned along with the world lord's not going to let you continue to desecrate him is what he's telling them so then my brethren you're still my brethren When you come together to eat, wait for one another. We're doing this in fellowship. This isn't individualistic in ideology, theologically or practically. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that you will not come together for judgment, motive. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. And we'll talk about those final verses when we meet together again next time. Let's pray.